just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to look at your word and, and understand what it is you would like to have us learn from this. We ask your spirit lead and guide in all of this. In your son's name, amen. amen. Daniel chapter 6. And before we start this, this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And you guys just had it in Sunday school yep. a couple weeks ago that they were talking about that. But the age of Daniel, and I just wanted to bring this out for this group as well. You know, usually you look at it in the Sunday school material, you know, you, you, you get these little posters that they show, and, and Daniel looks like he's like 20 or 30 years old, you know, and it's, you know, he's a young kid, and usually in a, in a den with maybe two or three lions. We're going to look at the fact that there's a lot more than two or three lions probably in this den, and we want to re realize that Daniel is probably somewhere around 82 or 83 plus at this time I never would have thought of that because he went to Nebuchadnezzar as a young lad probably 10 11 12 and according to Daniel 9 2 he was reading in in uh, Jeremiah that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years and be returned and Darius is going to be the king that returns them uh, and that's Jeremiah 25 11 Jeremiah 29 10 and also second Chronicles 36 21 the Jews knew that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years if they if they knew anything about the prophets at all so this means that Daniel had been under Babylonian rule for that 70 years maybe 68 years you know and Darius had a year or two before he you know before he sent him back but He's sitting there right at 80, 81, 82 years old, maybe a little older. So when we think about this, this is not a young person being thrown into this den of lions that we're doing this story. This is a very mature individual as we start this story. Elderly. Yeah, elderly, yeah. <laughs> okay, ver chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first, and the princes might give accounts to them, and the king should have no dam damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because of an excellent spirit was found in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. And we're going to stop there because this is going to be the setup for why everything happens. Uh, Darius is, he just took over a new kingdom, okay? The Medo-Persian Empire has conquered Babylon. And remember early on we said that Babylon was already separated into all these different places. He's going to re basically set the same thing up, 120 provinces that Babylon had. And all of a sudden he is now in charge of everything from the Mediterranean to India. So he's got a large kingdom and he decides he's going to set up 120, it says princes here, Governors is probably a better word for it. Uh, the, the actual word that they used was satraps, <laughs> uh, which governors, princes, uh, and it's, uh, they're not really princes. That's, so that's the point I'm trying to make. You know, and princes would indicate that they were of royal, his royal family, and that's not, not what we're looking at here. And he's over them, he's setting up three presidents or chief overseers. So he's got three people that are in charge. Basically, he's setting it up so that he does not have to do the administrative day-to-day -day operation of running the kingdom. He's got 120 people over each, uh, one person over each of the 120 provinces, and then he's got those people reporting to three presidents. And then it is this little thing, and he was going to make Daniel number one. Okay, I got three presidents, but you're going to be the top one. You're going to be the top dog, Daniel. And you've got to think, he's, he's in his 80s at this point. He's already, under Nebuchadnezzar, been number, number one in the nation, you know, behind, behind Nebuchadnezzar. So the same position Darius is trying to promote him into is what, what he did for years under Nebuchadnezzar. And then, as we saw, by the time we get to Belshazzar, he's no longer, you know, he's basically retired. He probably hit 60 or so and said, it's time to, time to go down. I don't like... I don't like the guys running it anyway. They're not following God. I'm just going to step down and retire. And all of a sudden, he's back into prominence under this new king and ruler. And this king and ruler wants to make him basically number two in the kingdom again. So we see this whole setup. 
And then we see, of course, the response of the people to this. They weren't extreme, they didn't really, weren't too thrilled with this idea. Uh, verse four, then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for so much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning his God. So we're looking at this. This is an amazing statement when you really think about it. We have 122 people that are deciding that they need to find something wrong with Daniel. Okay, now these people, even though they lived a long time ago, were not incompetent at finding <laughs> problems because politicians have been politicians forever. Okay, and politicians love to find the dirt on people so that they can hold it against them, and that is not new. Okay, everything, huh? They even did it back then, then I guess. Oh, court intrigue has always existed. Okay, and we look at this. The presidents and princes sought to find an occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. What this really means is they were find, trying to find some impropriety, some place where he took advantage of a situation or took a bribe or siphoned tax money to himself. You know, this is what they're looking for because that's what they would do, okay? They would take the bribes, they would siphon money, and the government does this all the time. Okay, using knowledge that they get to make investments, you know, whatever it might be, they can find no fault against Daniel in any of the government. And then it goes on that they couldn't find, he was so faithful that they couldn't find any error or fault against him. So once they said, okay, he's clean with the government, let's see if he has any personal skeletons in the closet. And they couldn't find any skeletons in the closet anywhere. All these times, there's been all these battles between the, the politicians trying to get enough dirt on somebody, especially their superiors, to get their way of going, you know, making, well, if they know this, you're, you're going to lose your job. Now, it didn't work against the kings, but it did work against all of his subordinates and, and bureaucracy that existed under him. And the bureaucracy has always cheated, uh, cheated, well, I shouldn't say always, but many of them have cheated the government and pulled, pulled money for themselves. And, taken advantage in, of their position to get the best places to live and the, and the best servants and all of this. And they're looking at Daniel and they can find no fault in Daniel. Daniel, as a young lad, a young teenager, stood strong for God and had a good reputation. Here he is at the end, or, end part of his life and he's still walking strong with God with no accusations being able to be made against him. This is something that is amazing because not everybody has done this. Daniel is one of, the, one of the characters in the Bible that we have that there's nothing negative said about him. The other one is Josh, uh, Joseph. Jo nothing negative is said about Joseph. Now Moses had all kinds of problems. Abraham had all kinds of problems. Jacob had all kinds of problems. David had all kinds of problems. So, you know, we look at this and when God people and heroes in the scriptures, most of them have lots of problems for us to see, but Daniel is living a life. Is he perfect? No, he's not perfect. He's a sinner just like everybody else, but he's living his life in such a way that when people look at him, they see a godly man. The errors that he's making are not strong enough for them to say, you know, hey, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna hurt you. And this is an amazing statement that they're saying, that they couldn't find anything. And so what do they decide in verse 5 is, hey, we can't find anything against him, We're, you know, but he is this godly person. We're going to find it concerning his God. This means that they've been watching him. They know that he prays three times a day. They know that he's, that he's not working on, on the Sabbath days. They know that he's doing all these things to honor God. May even know some of his past. Okay, because it's been a year or so that Darius has been in charge. They may know some of his history as well as, you know, not eating, not eating certain foods and being the interpreter of the dreams and, and all the stuff that's going on. But they're going, it is going to take an action against his God <laughs> to bring him down. And this is quite a, quite a sta statement. 
So in verse 6, Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said unto, thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the princes, all the presidents of the kingdom and the governors and the princes and the counselors and captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now the king, now O king, establish a decree and sign the writing that cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. Therefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. We notice a lot of things here, all right? It appears that a large crowd came in to see the king. If everybody is there and it seems to indicate that they were all there, or there's a few people being the spokesman for them, I don't know. I believe there was a crowd. Otherwise, the king might have noticed that Daniel wasn't there. Okay, if it was only two or three, there might have been an, okay, well, where's Daniel? Why isn't, you know, he's my top advisor. Why isn't he there? So I personally believe, if not all 122 of them were there, plus these other people, a very large representation was there. Okay, and that's just opinion. Like I said, if I think if there's only a handful of them, the king might have said, well, where's Daniel? I want to get his, his take on that. But there was a large enough crowd, and if you've ever been in a crowd, you know, it's hard to see every face in a crowd, so it might have been, okay, Daniel's over sitting in a chair over there or something, you know, you know and he hasn't, he hasn't raised an objection. He's here someplace. But they, they, they lied to him. All of the leaders have said this is a good idea. And you know that this played on the ego of Darius. Nobody prays to anybody but me. That sounds like a really good idea. Okay? He's, he's probably a polytheistic individual. He's got lots of gods. That we're going to see that it seems that he's have some reverence to this god of Daniel's. But he's probably still a polytheist. Otherwise, he would have said, no, I'm not going to do this. And the one thing you want to understand, when we read these things about people worshiping multiple gods, when it comes, says that they turn to the God of the Bible, usually what ended up happening is the same thing that happened when, in the fourth century, when Rome declared Christianity the, the approved religion of the, of the empire, people just said, okay, well, we'll add, we'll add this God to our, to our pantheon. And when, if they really wanted to look good, and this is what happened in many other cases, they went to their pantheon and they changed out their gods for the, for the saints and the apostles. And said, okay, we got Paul and, and all these people and they just switched, switched them. And so here we see Darius is probably just saying, it's just another God in here and it sounds good to not have, you know, for 30 days it sounds good. I'll just have everybody pray to me. You know, and whether he believed he was a God or not, I don't know. I couldn't find in there to see whether the Medes and Persians considered themselves gods. But it doesn't seem that he does. Okay, he's just flattered. It sounds like a good idea. All my leaders are saying it's a good idea. You know, they, they all agreed that it's a good idea. They say nobody else can pray, so I think it sounds like a great idea. And this is where pride can destroy. That idea of being, being proud can set you up for some big problems because people like to stroke egos, make you feel like you're more important as they turn around and get their way by, getting, by trip, tricking you into a bad place. And you notice they understand what they're doing because they say, we want you to sign this paper and decree, and according to your laws, as soon as you sign it, it can't be changed. Okay? And this is a critical thing for us to understand. They know what they're doing, and they know that they're tricking Darius. Darius doesn't know that he's being tricked. He's feeling like, oh, these people are really looking up at me. They're really making me sound good. They're really... They really love me. Look how much they want to lift me up and they want to just make their request to me and me only. I can guarantee that the only person they cared about was Daniel. <laughs> they didn't care if they went in to pray to Baal or, or any of these other gods. They were just going to say, we're going to get Daniel. And we see this really big thing and they say, cast into the lion's den. Okay, now the den here was not a cave. It was usually a pit. And it was a hewn out rock, and they found, they found several places. The Medo-Persians used this as an execution format for them. They would keep hungry lions in a very large room and keep them 
just to the point that they weren't dying of hunger, but that whenever somebody was sent there, they were going to be hungry enough that they attacked whatever came into their, into their room. And so this is what they're looking at. And King Darius doesn't, you know, this is something that shows that King Darius has some problems because he signed this without even thinking about it. He signed this without really going to any counselors. He just says, this sounds like a really good idea and signs the paper. And this is going to be his first major problem. He's, verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he knelt upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did afore. Very clearly it says, Daniel knew. He knew the law was signed and he was still going to obey God. Part of his religious practice was, and to the Jews even to this day, for the Orthodox, <laughs> that they pray three times a day toward Jerusalem. All right? He says, I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter. He had, a, he had an option when he was at this point. He could say, I'm going to obey God rather than man. Or, it's only 30 days. I can, I can stop praying for 30 days. He was going to be guilty either way. We have to understand this. He was either going to be guilty be, to the king and, these, and, the, and the law, or he was going to be guilty toward God, and he knew that they would note that and it would be used against him. I would rather be guilty to the king than our God. You know, well, guilty to you. <laughs> well, that is obviously what he chose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, he had two choices. It was only going to be 30 days. He could have said, well, I'm gonna, I, I, I won't pray in public anymore. I'll go back to the back closet and pray. Uh, I'll pray quieter. I'll close all my windows and they won't look like I'm praying. But maybe somebody else back then, they probably would have turned the other way to pray to their... Oh, but you know, this, is, this was yeah. his choice. Obey God and keep praying and take, take the penalty or just 30 days, hide it, or stop praying for 30 days. And the sad thing is, I know many Christians that would say, well, I just won't pray, you know, or I'll hide in my closet and uh, I'll just pray in my heart. I won't, I won't pray out loud and nobody will know that I'm praying. And Daniel decided he was going to obey God. And the key to this, and we've talked often about this, we have a choice when something goes, when we have a law or a rule that comes our way, we have a choice to obey God sometimes rather than man. And it's coming even more for us. Okay, We're right on the edge on a lot of our laws that are saying that it's against the law to do something. I was just reading articles today in, in Ohio that is passing some laws that are they're trying to apply to churches that will say you have to tra you know, open your bathrooms for transgenders and all these things to the churches and the churches are pushing back. Okay, some of them anyway. But these laws are coming our way. There are going to be times when it's going to be, are we going to take a stand for God and have discipline from the government or are we going to give in? And there's certain things we give in because there's no real rules against, against it, but there's certain things that are going to say, no, we're not going to go that route. And at that point, we may end up crossing the line to disobedience to the government. And the thing I keep pointing out is when we choose to disobey the government, when Daniel chose to disobey the government, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to disobey and not bow before the idol, when the apostles disobeyed and preached Christ in spite of being told not to, they willingly took the punishment from the government because the government is an authority. And we all have been there at some point in our life where we have to try to figure out, okay, I've got two authorities in my life saying different things, which one do I obey? Usually you obey the one that you fear the most. <laughs> okay, and one of the pastors was talking about, you know, his son being on a baseball team, and he says he's got to obey the coach, and he still, but that doesn't mean because he's obeying the coach that he disobeys family rules. Okay, and so this kind of idea, we all know what it's like to be in a place where we have to make some decisions on who do we obey. Daniel's in this situation. He knows that when he prays to God, he's probably going to end up in the lion's den. 
he probably has been aware of these guys watching his life, trying to find out what's going on. He's probably aware of their jealousy. Because when people are jealous of you, you usually know that they have a problem with you. You may not fully understand what their problem is, but he's aware that these guys are a little envious of him. He's been in this business for 70 plus years. He, know, he knows court intrigue. He knows how to read the signs. He knows what's going on around him. And he knows that when he's making this prayer, he may not know that it's going to happen the first day, but he is probably absolutely sure that it's going to get back to the king, that the king is going to get news that he is praying to somebody other than the king. And I think he did it on purpose. It, because he opened those windows and he did it, everything he normally did. And I know, and I believe he did it fully on purpose, saying, okay, God, it's you and me. It's you and me. You, you've, delivered me. you've delivered me from all these other things. You've delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've protected us. You've kept us. If I die, I die. If, I, if you know, I'm old enough, I'm ready to go home you know, if, if, at this point. But if you want me another miracle and, and amaze another king, then let's go for it. Okay? But I really believe that's where he's at. And we need to be always aware, and I've said this over and over, we read these stories where God does miraculous protection of his people. That does not mean he's always going to deliver his people out of the pain of the incident. Because we look at the apostles. The apostles, when they were beat, had to be in pain for, for several days at least. You don't get scourged and just get back up and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not in any pain. Uh, they were out serving God the next day. But you've got to figure, if you just took, especially from the Jews, 39 lashes with the whip cutting your back, that did not tickle. You did not just get up from it and and say, well, I'm not in any pain. So everything they did the next day would have been a painful endurance. Even worse, later on, they all died as martyrs, except for John. All of them died by, mart as, by martyrdom. Isaiah didn't, didn't get through. He got sawn in half in a log. You know, he did not get delivered from, from, the, from the people. So we want to be careful as we look at these stories where God delivers people. There's times he delivers. There's times he lets us go through pain. And there's times he may just say, okay, you've done enough, come home. But no matter what it is, it's his will. And we need to be willing to say, God, I'm going to serve you no matter what it costs. And make those choices. Verse 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spoke unto the king concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man that shall, shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be altered. And they answered, Then they answered they and said, King Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah regards not you, O king, nor the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. You know these guys were camped outside Daniel's house. <laughs> okay, because they already know that he's prayed three times, so they went, they, they, they ran, probably ran from the king's chambers when they got this thing done to Daniel's house to see what was going to happen. Because, again, we, we bring out if Daniel chose not to pray, now they've got him because he's not being true to his God. And they would have said, well, see, you're not that perfect anyway. You don't really believe your God. If he prays, they've got rid of their problem because he's going to be cast in the lion's den and, and consumed. So they think they've won this battle. And running to the king, you know, hey, king, didn't you sign this? Didn't you sign this? And the king still doesn't know what's going on. And he says, yes, I did. But listen to their statement. That Daniel, which is of the children of captivity of Judah. Anti-Semitism is nothing new at all. You can hear it dripping off of their, their accusation. That Daniel, you know, that, that Jew that you're trying to put over us doesn't, doesn't listen to you. His God is more important to him than, than you are. And you hear it just dripping off here. And Satan has kept anti-Semitism alive 
again, nothing new under the sun. It's been going on for, for millennia. And sometimes it fades away a little bit. Sometimes it, it kicks back up. But it has been out there. Satan hates the Jewish people because they are part of prophecy and the end times. They were part of bringing the Messiah. And all through the Old Testament, anti-Semitism was designed to try to get rid of the Jews so that the Messiah would not be born and would not be coming. That's why they tried to kill him out so many times. And since Jesus' time, Jesus' birth, it's all been because the whole book of Revelation is about the Jews. And most of what we're going to get to in Daniel coming in is future for the Jews. So we see this anti-Semitism that is powerful out there and Satan is trying to destroy them. And here we see that anti-Semitism right in their voice. That Daniel, that Jew that you're trying to put above us. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't care about you. He's prayed three times a day. Which meant that they stood outside Daniel's window and down outside his property all day long. You Because know, they might have thought if he prayed in the morning, maybe he hadn't heard. But when he prayed every single time, all three times during that day, it was, oh, you know, he kind of knows what's going on. We know that he knows what's going on. They probably sent somebody to his door to make sure that he knew. And they found out that he didn't. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes, O Persians, that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. I love this response from Darius. Darius has definitely fallen in love with Daniel. He sees the righteousness. He sees how, how honorable he is. He's probably, looked, he's probably done a background check. Again, background checks are not something that's new either. These guys wanted to know who they were putting in charge. Are these an, is this an honest person? Is this a dishonest person? Is this, a, you know, is this somebody I can trust? Especially if they're going to make them number one in their land, or number two in their land. They're going to say, is this somebody that I can trust? And I love this. When he heard these words, he was sore displeased with himself. He knew that he had been played. <laughs> he knew that he had allowed himself to have this in there. He's probably kicking himself saying, why didn't I grab my, you know, my, my counselors together to, uh, to look at this and to give me advice on whether this is a good idea instead of falling into the pride that he fell into, having his ego stroked. Oh, King, you're so wonderful. You're so, you're so great. Who, who, should be, who should be answering these, these, these prayers but you? You, know, you're, you're, you are the most wonderful and all these things that they would have been saying to him. And all of a sudden he knows that he's been tricked. The person he's want, been wanting to make number one in his land because he knew that Daniel would be able to run his kingdom without him having to pay a whole lot of attention is now sentenced to death. And he knows it. And you look at this. He labored until the going down to the sun. He, he worked. I can picture him calling in the Department of Justice. Get in here, guys. I want some lawyers in here. You know, give me the loophole. Find the loophole that I can get out of throwing the, this one that I want to be the advisor of my land into the lion's den. Now, I'm adding to this, obviously, but it says he labored. It wasn't, I, I really, there were lawyers in there. There would have been people that he would have called and said, I want every book, I want, I want every law. I want you to find any law from, from three kings ago that could, could be applied to this case. I need a law. I need a precedent to say he's not going to be killed. And this is a serious issue for him. It also shows how much he's trusting Daniel and that he's come to depend on Daniel. He's working hard to keep him from going, in, going into this. And then it says the men, the men in verse 15, it says that the men came and said, oh king, you know, the laws can't be changed. You made this law and it can't be changed. And then it says in verse 16, the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, the, the God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. 
and a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of the lords, that the purpose might be might not be changed concerning Daniel. So we see the guys coming at the end of the night saying, hey, king, you have no choice in this matter. He's got to die. You made the law. You know, you've, worked, you've worked all day trying to find your loophole. You haven't found it. It's time to put him in the lion's den. So the king calls him, and I love what he says to him. The God whom you serve continually, and that could also mean worship there, he will deliver you. King Darius has got some level of understanding of Daniel's God. This indicates that Daniel and he have been talking. <laughs> because you can picture this. You know, We read at the end of the previous chapter, Darius is 62. Daniel is 82. Daniel's kind of like a father, would be like a father figure to him. He's going to tell him, you know, he's found Daniel with all the acumens that he's number three leader of Babylon. He's probably no, been told the story, no, I didn't want these things, but they gave it to me anyway because I in, interpreted the dream. But with Nebuchadnezzar, I helped, you know, I did these and this is what God did. And he gives him all of God's messages. Daniel was not a shy person when he gave about giving the messages of God. So Darius may not be a full convert at this point, but he's, he's interested. He knows that this God has done great things. And Daniel may have told him all about the plagues in Egypt and given him the story of the Jews and how they, how they became a mighty nation, which he might have been aware of. But he, then he would tell him about how they turned their back on God and they were being disciplined. So I believe that Darius knew a lot about this God. He, I don't, it, we don't see this idea that he's a convert to Judaism, but he is definitely interested. And he's also understanding that if this God that Daniel's been telling him about probably can deliver him. He's already been delivered, you know, with the food. He was delivered from the, you know, his friends were delivered from the fiery furnace. He's been, he's had all these miracles in his life. He's telling them all about the miracles of, of the Israelites. And so he comes in and says, okay, I have been tricked. For the good of the kingdom, I hope that this God can. And he's very confident in this statement. Your God will deliver you. That's quite a statement. How many Christians wouldn't have ever made that kind of a statement? You know, God will deliver you as you're, as you're facing, your, facing your death. And yet the king, who's not a true, a full believer, is saying, your God will deliver you. And then you note, very interesting on this, they put the rock over it, the king sealed it, and all the other lords sealed it. Is there any thought that you might have on that? They didn't believe that King Darius would leave him in there. They believed that as soon as they got out, that he would probably drag him out and just be able to put his signet ring back in the wax and say, see, it was sealed. They wanted to make sure that there was no deliverance by humans for Daniel. As the king, he probably should have been insulted, and probably was, that his ring and his statement wasn't enough. They had to put their rings in the, in the wax to prove that that seal had never been broken. And you think about that, 120 governors and two other presidents all putting their rings in, in this wax. There had to be a lot of wax there. And all these rings are in that wax to show that this seal was not to be broken. That's a lot of hatred toward Daniel that these guys are having. A lot of jealousy that he was going to be made number one. A lot of anti-Semitism because it's the Jews we saw on their accusation. This Jew that you have put in charge of us is, you know, doesn't care about you. And so we see all of this going on that everybody's marked this tomb. Uh, yeah, well, supposed tomb. <laughs> kind of refers you to back to Jesus in, in some ways that his tomb was sealed with the royal signets. And I would believe even Jesus, even though it doesn't say it clearly, I believe that many of the Jewish leaders probably put their signet rings in the wax on the tomb just to make sure that somebody else didn't deliver. Because <laughs> you know, they were that hatred, of, that much hatred of them and saying, we're not gonna make sure, we're gonna make sure no human can, will break this. You know. And so we see a very sad situation. The man that the king trusts, probably seems to care about and to love a little bit, 
has been thrown into this lion's den, or you could call it a tomb because he's not expected to ever come back out, and he's not really expecting there to be a body to bring out. Okay, and uh, verse 18, then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting, neither were there instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. The king is not in a good mood. <laughs> and you, you figure he's gone in in the evening. Most of the time for the king, that meant some kind of big feast, a party. All the 120 you know, rulers would have been there. All the captains and everything would have been enjoying the feast. And maybe they were, but he wasn't going to. Music and entertainment. And he says, no, I'm not participating in any of this. I'm going to fast. I'm going to probably pray. I could picture him doing prayer, you know, the God of Daniel, you know, will you deliver him? You know, I don't really know who you are, but please deliver him. I, I've been tricked, I'm, you know, and all the things that he would have been going in into that uh, situation. But he is not participating in a normal palace routine that night. And it says also, he didn't sleep. You know, this is, this is a lot of concern. When you're concerned about something enough to not sleep, that's a lot of concern. A lot of worry. He spoke a very clear statement, your God will deliver you, but this is obvious that you know, he didn't, wasn't fully convinced at this point because there's this worry, is it, am I going to find him alive or dead? You know, I said his God will deliver him, but am I going to find him alive when I get back there? That, that was a whole bunch of hungry lions down there. They don't, they don't just ignore things we throw down in the, into the pit. And then it says, and... The, in verse 19, then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the lion's den. And when he came, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God, whom you serve continually, able to deliver you from the lions? I love this. He, and it says very early, which kind of indicates that the sun is just coming up or has just come up. So depending on what time of the year it is, we don't have a key. You know, we're talking about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe 5 if it's like us, you know, and it's 5 in the morning anymore is bright. But he's there and he's saying, Daniel, are you still alive? You know, did your God deliver you? The God that you continually serve, was he, and you look at this, was he able to deliver you. Yeah. We see this. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar asked the same thing to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace, and who is the guy that is able to deliver you? And I've always, I've always thought their answer was classic. You know, we will serve our God. He is able to deliver us. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will serve the Lord. Now, we don't have that statement from Daniel, but I'm sure Daniel has that same attitude. Okay, I'm going to serve my God, and if he delivers me, fine. If he doesn't, that's fine, too. Yeah. This is the attitude that we have to have when we're going through things. The, and this is what I've said over and over. I always said as a teenager, the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. Because if you kill me, I get to go home. <laughs> I don't have to suffer any more pain. I don't have to suffer any more attacks. I don't have to suffer any more. If you almost kill me, that means I have to get healed and get, go through all this stuff some more. You know, I have the feeling Daniel had this same mentality going into the lion's den. I just hope these lions tear me up real quick so I can go, I can go home. Or God makes sure they don't hurt me at all. <laughs> and you've got to remember, this is a pit. And I do not believe that they're lowering them down on a rope or a ladder. They're throwing them into this pit. So we almost have two miracles we're going to see in here because they're going to find that there was no hurt to Daniel. Have you ever thought about that? He's been thrown into a pit. An 80-something-year-old man, even if it's only an 8 or 9-foot drop, which is probably further because the lions can have a pretty large jump, so it's probably closer to 15 to 20 feet down. And he doesn't get damaged even from the throwing into the pit. An angel would have lowered him in or softened his descent. Because if you've ever jumped over 10 feet in onto anything, it's not, a, not an easy landing. 
they usually break a bone or, or do serious damage to him. And we're going to see when we get to this that no hurt was on Daniel. And I just threw that out because it's something we don't usually think of. There's two miracles here. Perish is being thrown into a pit with no damage. And then the fact that the lions don't attack him. Verse 21, Then Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the, mouth, uh, shut the lions' mouths, and they have not hurt me. For as much as before him in innocency was found in me, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel just praises God. You know, I'm down here with these lions. And uh, by the way, uh, God kept their mouths shut. And he recognizes it's got to be an angel. They, you know, I can picture, can you picture he's standing there and the, the, the lions are looking at him. They're drooling. They're hungry. Uh, he might have pet him. But I think, I think I, had this, I had this more serious picture. The lions are wanting to do harm. Okay, and their mouths are been kept shut, and you can probably see the fear in the lions at first, you know, that we can't do anything. <laughs> and it could have been the other way around, that God just tamed them for the, for the night. Uh, you know, either way, I've, I've always pictured it more of God literally, these lions wanting to do <laughs> what it is they want to do and not being able to, but God had the power to do either way. You know, the pictures of him, you know, you see this pictures of Daniel laying on a lion as a pillow for the night. You know, it's, it's totally possible that God did that for him. That's what I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to make it a big deal either way. Because God is perfectly possible to have tamed them for the night and made them little, little kitties that he could enjoy for the night. Or he just literally closed their mouths and they wanted to do more and and he just wouldn't you know created a wall that they weren't able to get past either way it's still a great miracle and daniel still was delivered and you know daniel recognized that god kept them and that he hadn't been hurt Life and I, god's creation yeah well god's creation he could do what he wants with them but it, it, this line that david yeah, daniel gives him for as much as before him innocency innocency was found in me Another word for this uh, word to be translated is purity, and I like purity a little better. In me was purity. Because he'd already disobeyed. He disobeyed the law. But he did it for pure motives before God. Because he says, I had purity between God and you. Now, he's not innocent. That's why I like purity a little better than innocent. Because <laughs> he broke the law. He knew he broke the law. It just was a dumb law. The only problem is we can't choose, pick and choose what laws we're going to obey from the government even when they do dumb laws. And if we decide to disobey a dumb law because it crosses over God's, God's rules, then we need to be ready to face the punishment for disobeying even a dumb law. And we're starting to see a lot of those laws being produced in our own country. A lot of dumb laws are coming our way that says, you know, challenging churches, are you going to obey man or are you going to obey God? And at some point, the government's going to come after the Christians for, for choosing to obey God. And again, we need to be prepared for that day. We are coming close to it. We're coming close to the end times where good is called evil, evil is called good. And we need to make our decision and make sure that when you're ready to do that decision that you're basing your decision on a clear command from God because otherwise you're just being disobedient. Okay, when the, Jew, when the disciples decided they were going to preach Jesus in spite of being told not to, Jesus had told them, go. Go and tell. They had a direct commandment from Jesus to tell, in spite of the government telling them not to. Daniel has a clear instruction from God to pray, and he's going to pray. Nothing new under the sun, yep. So, verse 23, Then the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the, out of the den, so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found on him because he believed in God. Okay, so this is that statement. Nothing was wrong. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, well, obviously these lions weren't hungry. Obviously, they, you, know, David, you know, Daniel got down in the pit and found some place to hide all night long. Okay, we're going to see none of those ideas hold any water whatsoever. 
Okay, but a lot of people will say, well, there, there, weren't, there weren't enough of them. He was able to hide in some corner. He, he hid under the straw, you know, and these, these lions were so dumb they couldn't smell him over all night in, the, in there, or, or they just weren't hungry. They'd just been fed the day, you know, before Daniel was thrown in. Okay, but we're going to see that that is not. He knew the lions for 10 years. Um, yeah, yeah, he knew the lions. He detained them, you know. It's, you know, there's all kinds of excuses that people will use on how he got away, you know, how he got away from, with this, you know. But this is why the next section is so, Im <laughs> so important for us. Verse 24, And the king commanded, and they brought before him the men which accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions with them, their children, and their wives. And the lions had mastery over them and broke their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. These lions were very excited to finally get fed. <laughs> And so the idea that the lions just weren't hungry when Daniel was thrown in is totally torn apart by this <laughs> next scripture of them being torn apart. They were tame lions or somehow not hungry. Torn apart when God shows us this next section. And it says, the king commanded and they brought those that had accused Daniel. And this word literally means slander, accused maliciously. and has the idea, it's got a figurative picture of chewing on somebody which is what slander really is. When you are saying things about people, you're literally chewing on their character, trying to destroy in some way their character. And this is why it is so important that when we come together, we don't attack other people. We don't go after other people. We pray for them. We love them. And in Christian circles, we have this wonderful you know, ability to, to gossip and slander people under the name of, let's pray for this person. Let me give you all the details you need to know to pray for them. All I need to know is their name. I don't need to know every detail of what they're doing wrong or what's <coughs> happening in their life. It's totally irrelevant to be able to pray for them because God knows what they need. And yet in Christian circles, it happens all the time. You've got to pray for brother so-and-so because, and then you go into a 10-minute diatribe on everything that they, that's going on in their life that nobody needs to know to be able to pray for them. Now, if, you're, if you want them to pray for you and you want to give lots of information about why you need prayer, be my guest, but make sure it's just you and not, well, I'm being attacked by so-and-so or this person or that person, you know. You, all you got to do is, I'm having a lot of troubles. I'm being attacked on, by, by a lot of people and a lot of things. And that's all people need to know to pray for you. They don't even need to know that much necessarily, but if you want to go into that much detail, that's not a problem. But I'm being attacked by, you know, by this person and that person and this person. No, that's way too much information and not needed. So here we see these people that incorrectly attacked Daniel are pulled together. And we notice... When we sin, as these people did, it doesn't just affect the individual. It is their whole family in many cases. We see it here. Korah, when they opposed Moses, it, God told Moses, separate the people from Moses. And Korah and all of his family, his children and stuff, were standing there and God opened the ground and swallowed them. So their entire family was taken and judged because of their action. And some of that is because there's this idea that you've infected your family. There's part of the, the retaliatory vengeance that comes into that. So God's going to say, I'm not going to leave anybody to do, do retaliation. But also the idea that most of the time these things don't just come out of the blue. You've talked with them around your family. You've, your family's minds are poisoned in that area. So God says, I'm just going to wipe out everybody. They didn't have enough courage to say, don't do it. They didn't, you know, I'm just going to take out their whole family. And we see, and then it says that they didn't even get to touch the bottom of the, the den. So a lot of people will go, well, there was only like five or six lions in that den. Uh, I don't know. There's enough lions in there that 120 people plus their wives and their kids do not touch the bottom of the, of the den. I don't know how many lions that takes. But it's not two or three lions. It's, not, it's probably more than a dozen lions. This is a lot of lions in here that Daniel had to spend the night with. Uh, because, and we don't know that it's 100, if the, it's 120, but it, I was looking at this. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, all seem to indicate that all of them are there. 
Okay, now maybe there were two or three that weren't there. Maybe it wasn't a whole 120. Maybe it was only 105 or 100 or 90. But still, there's a lot of people being thrown into this lion's den. And they're not getting to touch the bottom of the lion's den before they're being ripped to shreds. And this is a very important statement on when we look at, you know, when people say, well, the lions just weren't hungry when Daniel got thrown in. Well, the same lions down there when Daniel was thrown in the night before that would have, you know, should have been hungry enough to tear him, tear him apart before he hit the base are now tearing hundreds of people, a couple hundred, 200, 300 people before they even touched the bottom of the den. Are you telling me as they were thrown in, they were killed, their bones broken and eaten before they hit the They were biting and tearing them before they even got to the bottom. Yeah, it says they were torn in pieces before they got to the bottom, before they even touched. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is a story we tell to kids all the time. But you know where we stop on this story? Daniel being taken out of the lion's den. Alive. Same thing we do, most teachers do when we teach Goliath. David hit him with a stone and he fell. And we don't go into the part where David cuts his head off. Okay. He uh, carries it around. Yeah. In between the eyes. Yeah. I thought it was the temple. So, in, and I understand doing that with young kids. Okay. I don't want to scare young kids to, into, into you know, fears and nightmares. But once we get to the primary on up, and we're not telling them the whole story, we're opening them up to all the accusations that we just talked about. People saying, well, yeah, he just slept the night. There were only three, you know, three, three lions down there, and you know, he was able to hide from them. Or, or they'd just been fed. They weren't hungry. And without going to the rest of the story, they can buy into the lies and the accusations of, the, of those who don't want to believe the Bible. And we set them up for that idea in the first place by not giving them the whole story. This is why it's critical for us when we're teaching children that we give them the whole of these stories that when we give them the story of Noah and the ark, that we don't show them some of these silly, ridiculous pictures of a little, little thing with animals hanging out, the, hanging out the windows that didn't exist in the first place and you know, barely, able, you know, barely able to fit into the boat. You know, and then people go, well, you know, that was a silly story. It couldn't, it couldn't happen. And they're thinking of that little picture they saw instead of a huge, monstrous boat that could hold airplanes in it in, in our day. You know, something the size of a small aircraft carrier that can hold airplanes and a crew of several hundred to a thousand. And we give them this impression that it's this little tiny thing that just barely could hold things. And people say, well, you know that all those animals couldn't fit in there. And they're going, they're remembering what they saw in Sunday school. Giraffes hanging out the windows, elephants, you know, barely, barely fitting in the, in the boat. And they go, you're right, that, that couldn't have happened. We have to be very careful about what we, what we teach our grandchildren, our, our children, our nieces, nephews, whoever it is that we have an opportunity to teach, that they understand the story the way God tells it. And like I say, if I was teaching a three or four year old, I'm not going to go tell them about these guys being thrown into the, into the den and being ripped to shreds before they get to the bottom. But you know, when I get to somebody who's in first grade on up, those guys have seen movies more vicious than anything this is going to bring out. They play games that are more vicious and and, and graphic than anything we're going to tell them. So I have no problem telling them. So we just need to be careful. We need to make sure that we also know the whole story, because I know there's lots of adults who never understood the rest of this story. I didn't know he was eight years old. Or how old he was, yes. <laughs> and again, it's part of the pictures we show to our kids in Sunday school, because I, can, I thought when I was thinking about this, when that was asked on our Sunday school class, I, I was doing the calculations, I'm going, he's in his 80s, and then I'm thinking back, I've never seen a picture of him being that old in the lion's den. And it really bothered me when I started thinking about it, how much I had been lied to and probably have used some of those pictures in my day to tell the story and then realized that I've told some kids the wrong information, even though I knew better. I knew that he was, had to be that old when I thought it out because I knew that he had been there for the whole captivity, which was 70 years, which I knew. Again, this is how easy it is for us to set up miscommunication and misconceptions with people and not even being done on purpose. It could be that something that has been ingrained into our heads for many years, which is why oftentimes, 
especially with my teachers when they tell me something, I'm going, where is that in the Bible? What, you know, what, how are you defending it? And I'll ask that if somebody, the teachers I'll ask sometimes whether it's right or wrong just because I want to make sure they know that they can defend it. But for other people, I'm going to go, where is that verse? Tell me that verse because I can't think of one that says that. And I want people to think about this because there's so much that we think is in the Bible that's not there. Uh, the statement that money is the root of all evil is said over and over again, and that's not what the verse says. The verse says the love of money is the root of evil. People in America especially will say godliness is next to cleanliness, and they think that obviously that's in the Psalms. Well, it's not a, not a bad idea to stay clean, but it is nothing in the Bible, and it is nothing about godliness. Uh, the other one, God helps those who help themselves. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that's in the Bible, and yet that's exactly opposite of what God says. God says he helps those who stop doing it themselves and let him do it. You know, these things sound so good. They, we, a lot of people believe they're in the Bible and will swear that they're in the Bible. Some people have watched some Christian-based movie that's supposed to be a biblical story, and they'll swear that something happened in the Bible. And then you go, well, no, it happened in such and such movie, but it's just not in the Bible. I think about that with the Ten Commandments movie. Not a bad movie overall, but it has enough extra scenes in there that are non-biblical. And when you teach the book of Exodus, everybody, inevitably somebody's going, well, didn't this happen? Didn't that happen? Well, no, I'm sorry, it didn't happen. Good movie, the movie was good, but that didn't happen in the Bible. But we see this kind of stuff happening. And this isn't, the Ten Commandments isn't the only movie. I've seen many, many movies that take a good, hard-hitting story. Watched one, Samson and Delilah, and it was an old, old movie. And I'm going, where did they get the script for this movie? You know, they got the two names, and that's about the only thing they had right in the whole story. I only watched about 40 minutes of it, and I said, I can't watch this movie. It's so far off, I can't watch this movie. You know, he needed his long hair, but that was about as far as it, <laughs> as close as they got to the right story. And it's a great, you know, the story of Samson is a great movie, story to make a movie out of. You don't have to add a whole lot of stuff to it to make a good movie, and yet they always add more to it. And this happens over and over and over again on quote-unquote biblical movies. And this is one reason why I caution people about watching biblical movies. Make sure you understand the story that you're, being, that you're going to watch because the, the places where they are off can really mess you up theologically and sometimes drastically so. And we want to be careful. Hey, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in the, on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed in his dominion unto the end. He delivered and rescued, and he works one signs and wonders in earth, uh, in heaven and in earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? <laughs> the 30 days does not appear to be over yet. <laughs> and he's saying, okay, I want you to pray to God. <laughs> and you know what? There's nobody to disagree with them because they're all been eaten by the lions. <laughs> the ones that would have disagreed with this decree <laughs> don't exist anymore. <laughs> the rest of the country might be a little confused. You know, we, we have a new, new, uh, new statement. But you've also got to understand most of these people it takes time to get these out to the furthest parts of the realm. So the 30 days is probably over for many of them anyway. But he's making a decree, and I love his decree. You're going to follow Daniel's God. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of, of being followed, and he is the one that can do miracles. Again, we don't see a complete conversion here, but you don't write these kind of words without having some respect. It doesn't indicate that he's totally given up all of his other gods, but he has at least a new main god in his pantheon, <laughs> and this is the god. This god is the one that delivered Daniel, and as I said, he probably knew the other stories and says, okay, this, is, this god is still the same god that Daniel was speaking about, you know, from the past. And, he's, and then it says, so Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He's going to have two more kings. Daniel gets to work with a lot of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, he skips over two, two generations to get to Belshazzar, and now he's going to work with two more kings. So four kings that he directly works with 
One, he just says you're going to die, and die tonight, your kingdom's being taken away. But uh, that was a very quick, quick association with him. But he's going to work in all with three kings in positions of authority. That's a long reign, a long place of being in, in authority and power, and it is an advisor. And this ends our little vignettes in this life, and we're going from this point on, we're going to be talking about prophecies. And this is where the book goes totally out of order because we're going to go all the way back to Belshazzar and we're going to bounce around in the next, the next six chapters because they're all the prophecy and, we, and they're not in, in chronological order necessarily. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us and go with us today. Help us to share you. Lord, we also getting ready for VBS in, in just a short time here, in less than a week, and we ask that you prepare the hearts of the children to hear the gospel, prepare the hearts of those that are going to work with the children, and that we might see some of these children get saved in this, that come to this VBS. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.